0: Welcome to the Global Child and Adolescent Health Podcast from Melbourne Children's Global Health. This podcast is a series of conversations with leaders in research, education and global child and adolescent health. These conversations place children and adolescents at the centre of sustainable development.
1: Professor Mark Cotton, pleasure to have you here. Now, Mark is... Trained in South Africa in medicine and pediatrics at the University of Cape Town and University of Wittsvoortersrand. He spent time in the US at Colorado as a pediatric infectious disease trainee and then returned to the University of Stellenbosch and Tigerberg Hospital in Cape Town um, and headed up the pediatric infectious disease group there. Mark's particularly well known globally for his work in research in pediatric. HIV work and he'll talk to us a little bit about that. And he has recently been the president of the World Society of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and remains involved in their education committee. So Mark, welcome to the Melbourne Children's Campus and many thanks for agreeing to this podcast for our Melbourne Children's Global Health Series. Uh, Thank you very
2: much and it's really lovely being here and chatting.
1: Good. So can you just tell us a bit about that early career background in medicine, peds, and public health? Yeah, no, thanks.
2: So um, as you've said, I uh, attended the University of Cape Town. Um, I was uh, a medical student from 1974 through 1979, and I'd always wanted to do medicine. I didn't quite know why, but I was very, very interested in it. Uh, one of the reasons I think that my uh, late father was a pharmacist and his dream for himself was to be uh, to become a doctor which he couldn't due to uh, poverty and uh, very bad maths and uh, and he'd always spoken about this and somehow we um, uh, absorbed this um, interest in 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 medicine. So, uh, I became uh, entered medical school and uh, really, really enjoyed it, loved academia and the various personalities that we, we came across who we uh, greatly admired and spoke about and wanted to emulate. And in my fourth year, which was the first time I was exposed to pediatrics, I somehow knew that that's what I wanted to, to do. Uh, really connected with these little kids. These were poor kids. We were at the old Somerset Hospital, which is a very Victorian era type of hospital, um, close to city docks in, in Cape Town. Uh, just a lovely atmosphere, uh, warm uh, consultants, uh, lo- good teaching, uh, kids really sick, but getting better and we're not getting better, the support that they got, um, you know, from the, uh, from the doctors and the nurses, uh, it just moved me. So that was um, <clears throat> why I wanted to do uh, pediatrics. And after that, my um, uh, sort of career path was uh, largely uh, influenced by circumstances, um, the main one being that uh, my wife, uh, Rina, or she became my wife, uh, decided to become a vet. And uh, there was one veterinary campus in Southern Africa in, at Onestaport, which is north of uh, Pretoria and linked to the Pretoria University. The other issue that we had to deal with at the time and uh, uh, the 80s, uh, were really, really bad in South Africa politically and we had conscription. So, of course, I was conscripted and um, I had to go through that uh, experience as well. And, uh, you know, doing it from Pretoria was what happened. Um, Although I was very, very fortunate to get into the least – military part of the South African army, which is pediatrics. So um, I was very lucky to do that. And in fact, the reason I did that, um, uh, one of the things that I had to do was to run a learning disability clinic, which I, of course, knew nothing about, but um, it did my best. And there were lots of children with learning disabilities in, in the uh, permanent force of the army. And um, subsequent to that, or uh, while I was uh, finishing off um, my military so called commitments, um, I uh, we had lots of uh, specialists from the University of the Witwatersrand run to uh, rotating through the military, the pediatrics department, and I decided uh, with the uh, agreement of my wife, Rina, to apply to do paediatrics on the WITS circuit. And this would mean my wife would have to commute from uh, Johannesburg to Oneslipuert every day. Luckily, the traffic wasn't what it is today, and she could do it. Um, And I joined uh, this circuit, which I really, really uh, loved, Um, I might just add that if my wife hadn't decided to become a vet, I would have wanted to stay in Cape Town at the local children's hospital and probably would never have put my nose out of that hospital if I could help it. Uh, But anyway, circumstances uh, changed and I adapted to that and during this um, experience, I became interested in infectious diseases. At that stage, it was not a recognized speciality at all, but uh, someone, uh, Frank Berkowitz, had just returned from a two-year fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases from Denver, Colorado, and I absolutely loved working with him, uh, uh, learning from his approach to the problem, um, I might also just add that um, I love the um, uh, definite, uh, the the uh, practical and definite issues related to infectious diseases, which is find a pathogen, but think about it, take a very good history, think widely, uh, talk to the mother, talk to the father. You know, talk to the child, examine the child, put everything together, and come up with a uh, a an approach and uh, do something about it. So, you, and I really, really enjoyed that. I might also add that um, I did see my first uh, patient with HIV during my rotation, and that was at Baragwanath. It's now called Chris Hani Baragwanath. Uh, a boy with uh, chicken pox, uh, severe chicken pox, and uh, when he came in, uh, because he had HIV, uh, the nurses put curtains, these mobile curtains, all around his bed uh, because they were worried more about the HIV than the chicken pox. I, what year was that, Mark? So to? that, yeah. So HIV, we started. We were starting to know about it, but I started in '84 mm-hmm. and was at Baragwanath in '85. Mm-hmm. So it was in 1985 85. when, you know, it it was just starting. We didn't really know much about it, and um, in fact, the first symposium uh, at WITS was held in 1987. And uh, in fact, one of the speakers was uh, Myron Levin from uh, the University of uh, Colorado, head of PEDS-ID. And he came to speak and I met him then. And uh, he was, uh, uh, in fact, Frank Berkowitz had worked with him and it was that connection that brought him uh, to Johannesburg. At that stage, there was almost no HIV in South Africa, a little bit with the mining And in some surveys, round about 0.1 or 0.2% of people tested had had HIV. So we knew that it was coming. It hadn't come yet. And, you know, it was untreatable. We didn't know much about it. But it was coming. And once my uh, rotation or my uh, specialization had ended, we moved back to Cape Town and to Tigerberg, and the the reason again was circumstances, and the circumstance was that my mother-in-law got cancer, and we needed to move down, and uh, you know there was no it was uh, you know when you know one's career changes, it's less important than uh, you know your family commitments, and uh, I had you know I, I went to I. Two choices. One is a registrar and training at UCT, or a consultant position at Tigerberg. And I decided to choose the latter, and I've really been attached to them ever since. Yes. And the other reason for uh, wanting to go to uh, to Tigerberg was uh, someone you know very well, Steve, and that's Peter Donald. So Peter Donald was the only person in Cape Town really doing something that was vaguely infectious diseases related. It just happened to be TB. And I really thought this was a a, a wonderful person to work with. And I would say that was an understatement. A real pleasure to, to work with Peter. And he said to me, well, you know, why don't you start looking at hyponatremia in TB meningitis in children? And, and that's what I did. know, we happened to have an assay for arginine vasopressin that the chemical pathologists had developed. So we attempted to study hyponatremia in the context of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion. Uh, it turned out to be a lot more complex than that and I can say uh, and also just to mention there was one of the other consultants, Johann Skuman, was doing his TB meningitis studies and measuring raised intracranial pressure. So we could actually measure sodium and we could link sodium to raised intracranial pressure and blood pressure and perfusion pressure. All these things, uh, that was really very interesting. And the summary I, I would say is that I learned enough to know that if I were to do it again, I would do it better.
1: <laughs> no, no, thank you. That's excellent. And I think you're right, Peter Donald has been an inspiration and mentor for many of us, hasn't he? Yeah, um, for sure. So can you, I mean, you talked about your training in South Africa. Okay. But now for health workers, the training for health workers in South Africa, has it changed much over the last few decades and how would that be?
2: Yeah, look, so I think the first um, way that it's changed is there's, uh, <laughs> there's nothing by skin color. Yeah. And that was really, really prevalent, uh, you know, when I was a student and as a trainee and it was extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. So that is gone. You know, which is a pleasure. So, you know, everyone does have an opportunity to study. Uh, I think actually it's got better. I think the subspecialities are more defined. Yeah. Um. And, yeah. you know, there's a, a, a pretty good uh, critical mass in infectious diseases. I would say that when I came back from the U.S., and maybe we can talk a b- little bit about that, but I was the... One and only PEDS ID specialist in the country and helped to set the curriculum, although uh, already the subspecialty had been decided that it, it should be developed. And so I was part of the uh, representing the PEDS ID side of things until more people joined the group.
1: Right. Can you just reflect a little bit on that, <laughs> the experience at Tigerberg after returning from? Uh, time doing the PEDS-ID fellowship in the US? Yeah,
2: so I just want to mention as well that I I did the PEDS-ID fellowship to learn about HIV and ah, then okay. to come back. Okay. So that was actually my goal and I wanted to do laboratory research as well right. and learn something about clinical management. And I did and I also learned to think more broadly. I would say that my own thinking was pretty regimented until then, you know, here's a child with malnutrition, that's what you do, here's someone with pneumonia, that's what you do, and then we're so busy that you move on to the next horrible situation that you have to deal with. So um, when I came back to Tigerberg, you know, I wanted to set up a proper division of pediatric infectious diseases and start a service for children with HIV. And at the time, there was really very little happening. You know, children were referred up, there was no clinic. In fact, there was no space to for a pediatric HIV clinic. So I had the response, well, welcome, it's wonderful that you came back to South Africa, but there's no space. Um. <laughs> so, um What I did was the pediatric uh, clinic, specialty clinics were on the um, third floor and on the eighth floor was the adult clinic, infectious diseases clinic, and they already had two uh, uh, ID consultants. And I said to them, you know, you've got all this space. Let's do a family clinic. And they said, sure, that's a good idea. And we did. So we could share the same uh, nurses and social workers and bring in myself and occasionally another uh, doctor. And we started what was actually the second family clinic in uh, probably on the continent, the first being in Pretoria from uh, Mariana Kruger at Caliphant. That was, I guess, an example of trying to solve one problem and, of course, creating a whole lot of new problems. Yeah. But anyway, that's how that uh, uh, family clinic uh, started. And I would say, you know, when I got back, you know, I thought, well, there are all these things that I needed to do. And I also wanted to. Start a, a HIV immunopathogenesis laboratory, and in fact, I did get enough funding to buy one bottle of monoclonal antibody. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was uh, extremely challenging, yeah. but uh, again solvable because you know in the immunology department, uh, you know there were some techs available, and I decided also for professional advancement, I needed to do a PhD. uh, And I decided that it would be on what I was uh, working on in Denver, Colorado, which was apoptosis and um, in pediatric HIV. And my idea at the time was that would be a cellular sedimentation rate equivalent, be able to monitor what's going on. And that was before the days of viral loads. So that was my plan. However... So you can imagine that uh, already there were children with HIV in the wards. You know, we were seeing them or my colleagues who were still there were were seeing them, but there was absolutely nothing you could do uh, to help them. And I think there was a a real sense of hopelessness in everyone. And, you know, we were dealing with lots of situations. And in fact, uh, I would say the seminal... Moment in the year that I arrived back was had something to do with cockroaches, uh, believe it or not. And, you know, I'd started doing ward rounds in the premature wards, and wherever you go, there are cockroaches all over the place running on the ivy lines, um, running on the notes. And, um, you know, and people would just wipe them off and say, ah, oh, you know, these cockroaches and, you know, this and that. And anyway, I wrote a a letter to the head of the hospital and said, I've never seen something so disgusting in all my life. And we're going to have an outbreak, you know, and you've got to do something. What was going on at the time was because of the change in government apartheid had ended there was new government in and they were really interested in community care and establishing community infrastructure but what they did was it was at the expense of the bigger hospitals and places like Tigerberg that had absolutely uh, deteriorated uh, in terms of physical infrastructure. What had happened was the vinyl they had Uh, moved away from the walls and the cockroaches like that and they were safe from insecticides and things like that and uh, and it was a huge problem. So it turned out there was uh, unexpected deaths in the premature wards uh, due to necrotizing enterocolitis and extended-spectrum Klebsiella pneumonia. So this was going on and then somebody, and I think it was one of my colleagues, leaked the letter to the press. And suddenly uh, there was this issue of babies are dying and there are cockroaches all over the hospital. What a disgrace. And suddenly the hospital found the funds to do something about it and to clean up the infrastructure. And then, of course, we decided to culture the cockroaches, which we did. Then I had a colleague in Denver, Colorado, and asked her, Look, you know, what do we do? How do we link what's going on? Because we cultured Klebsiella from the cockroaches, he said, no, you've got to do pulse field gel electrophoresis so you can identify uh, isolates in, um, uh, in in blood from isolates on cockroaches and uh, colonizing isolates. So we happened to have a very young uh, microbiology registrar and uh, somehow found the funding and she put all the isolates in a suitcase and flew off to Denver (laughs) and did it. You know, that circumstance made me realize, uh, forget about immunopathogenesis, uh, focus on clinical care and try to establish something uh, for these children. And there weren't notes, there weren't structured uh, files. It was absolutely nothing. So so that's how we uh, started that. Yeah.
1: That's, that's fantastic. And you've just talked to the issues of innovation, I mean, family integration, that you were well ahead of the time on that one, I think, because yeah. as we know, child health, adult health, various diseases tend to work in silos. And yet, You know, there was was always a huge need for that integration. Oh, that's for sure. You've talked about thinking outside the box um, and also being an advocate. So that leads to research. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wondered, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about, I know that you've been involved in leading many of the important clinical trials um, relating to HIV research. And so if you could just tell us about some of the important ones that you've conducted and led and how you think that's influenced policy because a lot of the audience are not that familiar with all the work that's been done in HIV.
2: No, no thanks. So I think I'll talk about two trials. The one was actually on uh, isoniazid prevention for TB and this was with Heather Zarr who is a, a pulmonologist at a Red Cross Children's Hospital. She was invited actually to a Rockefeller seminar that was being held in Inteb, Kampala, Uganda in early 2000 and asked me to help her think about it, that we could just advocate for what was going on in our setting, and uh, which I did and was really interesting. And I think the world was starting to realize, and by the world, I mean the well-resourced world where all the funding is, that actually HIV in Africa is a huge problem. And I, I know you've, you've seen that as well. After this seminar, Rockefeller put funding together and we, we could apply uh, for, for funding to do a study. And what we decided to do uh, was actually to do a randomised trial, which we'd never ever done before. And the first question we were going to look at because uh or trimethoprim sulfur was uh, some people were saying give it daily, others were saying give it three times a week. So we thought, why not compare? And then for good measure, one of uh, um, Heather's mentors, Greg Hussey, said, well, why don't you look at isoniazid as well? So fine, you know, let's do isoniazid versus placebo as well. It turned out that what we were thinking or was of was a factorially designed study to answer two questions in the same group of kids. And that's exactly what we
1: did. And this is isonized to prevent TB in the children living with HIV. Yes.
2: So that's, in fact, what we did. These were all highly symptomatic children living with HIV. And so they were randomized. Now, we found uh, an excellent uh, statistician at the Medical Research Council who I had worked with on my TB meningitis work. So I really really knew this was a, a good person and he is. Um Carl Lombard. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did this and we they were told, you know, you better uh, set up a, a data safety monitoring board. We said, well, what's that? Never heard of it, but really realized we had to do it. And uh, after a year, they stopped the study because there was a notable drop in mortality. It, it's the hardest clinical endpoint there is. In children uh, receiving isoniazid, and we couldn't really work this out because you could see the moment they started the isoniazid, the curves and the Kaplan-Meyer started parting. So uh, definitely, you know, something was going on. It was could have been, you know, subclinical TB. That's probably what I think it was, that it was just so prevalent in that particular group of children that were highly symptomatic, had never been screened. A lot of them had been treated uh, for TB in the past. In fact, every child that moved with HIV was treated for TB, because, and if they didn't move, because that's one thing you could treat, because there were no antiretrovirals at the time. So I think that is the first uh, study to mention And there have been a lot of, you know, which I won't talk about, but a lot of spin offs and other studies that we did. I'll just mention one, including colonization by multi resistant organisms. But I think the seminal trial for me and for all of us is the SHER trial. That's the Children with HIV Early Antiretroviral Study. And uh, the way this started again was uh, very interesting because a very far-sighted person at the NIH could see what was happening and realised there was a need for good infrastructure to do really good clinical trials. And so that was the first point. And they started what they called the Comprehensive International Programme for Research in AIDS and they invited consortia to apply I became uh, part of a group led by James McIntyre, uh, who was at that time he uh, was one of the co-founders of the Perinatal HIV Research Unit at uh, Baragwanath, and he said, "Well, why don't you work with uh, Dr. Avi Violari, who's interested? And by the way, there's uh, there's a, a Professor Dai Gibb in the UK who's also interested in doing something, you know, with with children." And uh, why don't you just uh, design a trial and let's apply for funding? And there were, you know, a, about five sort of subject areas. We were really the only, the main clinical trial, you know, of the, but what Gibb with the uh, master statistician uh, Ab Babica brought in was a huge amount of expertise that we didn't have. You know, I think if it wasn't for them, we would have... Uh, done a very interesting flawed piece of work that would have probably got published and that's it. But because of the infrastructure, the tremendous expertise that somehow we were now part of, um, we designed this trial. I was very interested, in fact, all of us were interested at that time in intermittent therapy, uh, intermittent antiretrovirals, because they weren't available, incredibly expensive. It was just totally unaffordable. And of course, the South African government was not interested in buying antiretrovirals for the country. But we were very interested in intermittent treatment. And the idea is someone is sick, you treat them, stop treatment. When they get sick again, just treat them again. You know, something something on those lines. Much for TB, you know, treat for six months, get TB again, treat for six months, you know, look for resistance, et cetera. And uh, also, there's the issue of, um, you know, if you start treating a baby, and what if they live for 70 years, you know, that 77 decades of antiretroviral therapy. Firstly, it's the mother's responsibility. Then the child goes through adolescence, you know, what's going to, you know, it's just too much. We we developed this idea that when to start treatment was based on expert opinion. And when do you start treatment with a limited resource, when you're sick and you need it. And that's really how it was. But uh, we decided, well, what if we compare early limited treatments, in other words, get them through infancy versus deferred continuous treatment, which was the standard of care and what everyone was saying. So that's how that started. And we did a randomized trial uh, comparing early limited treatment for either until the first or the second birthday versus starting when the CD4 count drops and then just continuing treatment. For the first year of that study, it was actually early versus deferred treatment. And other people had thought to do it, and we regarded early at that stage as under 12 weeks of age. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was also debatable when to do your diagnostic PCR, which was just being developed. In fact, in the Western Cape at that time, they wanted to wait until between four and six months because it's easier to get a blood specimen. There were all sorts of things going on at the time, but again, we had a DSMB, and after about 18 months, It was clear evidence that early treatment works and there was a uh, a 75% difference in mortality, again, measured by death, you know, this very hard clinical endpoint and of course, stage of disease as well. And that was actually the first randomized trial in the field of HIV to inform treatment guidelines. And that was for kids and our Data was released in 2007 in Sydney. Very quickly, the WHO changed their guidelines. In fact, it was really uh, probably uh, within 12 months and uh, other international guidelines followed. And then it took three years for South Africa to follow suit, which was very frustrating, uh, but not surprising. you know, given the South African government's approach to HIV in those uh, terrible times because, you know, so when we started the SHIRT trial, in fact, the government had made antiretrovirals available and we, you know, but we didn't know that when we were planning that that would happen. We thought this is just another way to get uh, ART to children who need it. So that was uh, uh, another issue.
1: Yeah, that, that's extraordinary story of, yeah. of original research, much needed, of course, at the time, and then getting to the results, translating to international policy guidelines and eventually national guidelines and, yeah. and implementation. And I guess it speaks to the huge burden on mortality. You've talked of the impact you are having on mortality, but It was extraordinarily tragic to see the impact on mortality on maternal and child health of HIV at the time prior to ARTs. It was an absolute disaster. It was a disaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to shift a little bit towards um, adolescent health. I mean, adolescent health is is certainly getting increased attention globally. And colleagues here at Melbourne Children's have been very much at the forefront, such as in the Lancet Commission on Adolescent Health, Mm -hmm. et cetera. It seems not widely known that the two major infectious diseases that affect adolescents globally are actually HIV and TB. And so why do you think this is and what's your perspective? How can we address neglect in this vulnerable and important population?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly correct. And, you know, we've known that once we started saving the kids, they were going to become adolescents. And also at the same time, uh, more and more f- there's been more and more focus on adolescent TB as as a major issue, you know, we, which it is. And I would say that to some extent, uh, in many ways, HIV has actually driven the agenda because the HIV community is strong and very very vocal, and other communities have. Uh, taken notice and have learned uh, and have benefited from this I would say that you know it's still there's still a long way to go but now there are at least in in our part of the world there are moves to set up adolescent wards we are still looking after adolescents with HIV the transition is a problem uh, that we you know still have to deal with and analyze how it's going on in our part of the world you know it's clear that this is an area for 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 advocacy and there's a long long way to go i might also tell you that in the you know when we started um adulthood actually started at 10 or 11 years of age and you would find these poor adolescents young like early adolescents were put in the same uh, wards and the same clinics as uh, as adults, you know, of all ages, which is totally wrong. Then especially in an African setting, there's a long, long way that needs to go there.
1: But it started. I, yeah. And I think, I think actually it's a challenge for many resource-limited settings, including in our Asia-Pacific region as well. And just going through the different stages of development now, if I could just talk briefly about the maternal then maternal infant or the, the you you've you, a long time ago tried to take a sort of family integrated approach. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, do you think that the maternal infant TB, HIV, these things are important. How, how 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 do you think we can better address this? Yeah. Look, firstly, it, it like for
2: both of us because of yeah. it, it's
1: vital. Yeah. you know we are we are
2: absolutely invested in in this space. But I I I think that one should be looking at the parent child. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for um, vertical transmission of HIV for a long time and even today is called MTCT, Mother, mother to Child Transmission, which is really a bit tough. Tough it, on the mother. It's, it's very tough on the mother, you know, yes. that, you know, yeah, she's, she may have HIV. How did she get it? Rather, looking at the parent is a way to go. So when I sort of use, and I must say I hate acronyms, but I do use them. And uh, when I use one, I would say vertical uh, transmission prevention or vertical transmission program or something like that. Some people say parent. And I think also what HIV has shown, the group that does the worst other males, Yeah, you know, and uh, they actually are a bit neglected. So I think if uh, we start embracing the, the fathers more and aim for family wholeness, you know, to move that way is the way to go.
1: That's novel thinking for me, but it certainly makes a huge amount of sense. So I'm really uh, pleased to hear that. You know, as as HIV, we've talked about in in the days when you started doing your research, the mortality, the the burden was so obvious. Um, now, perhaps it's not as visible as it was. How do we keep attention to an important public health problem? when it sort of loses visibility, if you like, particularly if it's a disease for low- and middle-income countries.
2: Yeah. I I think that's a really difficult one, and also because of uh, how how the funding flows to, to do research on these issues. So I think the first point to make is, yes, there is less HIV due to less transmission, but it's super complicated now we need to continue focusing and supporting, you know, working with and and publishing uh, a data on children with HIV. So I'll just uh, mention uh, a colleague, Ileana Rabi, a, published a study about two years ago on the babies with HIV she was finding in the ward and that she had mentored Redeploy was uh, specialising at the time, you know, to to study this. And the bottom line was that the mothers had huge issues with HIV themselves. You know, they knew they had HIV, but they wouldn't they wouldn't get the babies tested, or they wouldn't give them the medicines. And the question is why? What is actually going on? You know, where's the stigma? What is going on in the family spaces? If you in a Overcrowded township? How much privacy do you have? You know, what do we need to reach these women? So, these big prevention programs are industrial in a sense, in that you come in, you get counseled, you get your treatment, you move off, you come back, etc. But, you know, how do you individually reach out to a mother and a father? with HIV and get them involved, discuss, not only get them involved, but address the issues in a real way. And to me, it's much more needs to be done in individualizing and having the capacity You know, now that that the numbers are maybe a bit less, certainly for transmission, in South Africa, by the way, there are 6 million people with HIV, most of whom are on treatment. So they're essentially a relatively stable population, apart from those who are acquiring it now and who are transmitting. So it's hugely complex and it is a societal problem. That's really one of the areas where you must focus, basically. Okay.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's great, Mark. I just <clears> wanted to now, if I could, I know you've had many international collaborations. You've, you've referred to some of them with the US, NIH, <laughs> UK, MRC, et cetera. Your experience on how this has benefited South Africa, but what challenges come with North, North-South <laughs> partnerships? Yeah,
2: so it, it has benefited us immeasurably. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have been able to do anything without this uh, funding and sort of some farsight people making funding available to people like us who at the time really didn't know very much and uh, had a lot to learn. You know, apart from the um, meeting uh, really good people uh, from all parts of the world, you know, what I've learned is we have to be very good partners with our funders and our collaborators from well-resourced settings who uh, often are totally committed to working in the lower resource settings anyway and but but we have to be good partners and we have to do our utmost to put everything that we know into making these uh, collaborations work.
1: Excellent. Thank you. So can you just reflect now on your current research interest and how that arose? Explain yeah. explain what that is? And no, no
2: that thank you. So it all started with a SHER trial and early treatment. And my focus is to work on HIV remission and cure. Within the SHER trial, we actually have one of... Round about 180 virally suppressed uh, children between one and two years of age who uh, is in remission. So, this is a now about a 15 year old boy who was on ARVs until one year of age and then stopped by uh, according to randomization. And uh, his viral load has been undetectable since then, despite having HIV. Uh, uh, DNA, uh, easily found in his cells and again this is a wonderful uh, this is uh, Dr. Bialari's, uh patient and uh, Professor Carolyn Timerson is doing the science and of course I'm doing what I can to add in but uh, so so that in itself is pretty amazing. Mm. The scientific focus in HIV is heading towards understanding Remission, uh, possibly cure, although that is seems to at this stage be achievable only by stem cell and bone marrow transplant, which is not something you can roll out on a wide basis. But um, it it still is very very important, and we are working, you know, through the networks that I'm part of, uh, the Impact Network, which is funded through the uh, NIH, the NIAID, as a an active protocol looking at very early treatment. Uh, We're interested in uh, the new vaccines and uh, monoclonal antibodies that are coming, and we're also interested in the brain as a uh, possible reservoir HIV. And this also stems from the SHER trial where uh, I managed to drag a neurodevelopmental pediatrician in 2005 and said, hey, you better, you know, we need to look at the brain because if uh, everything else is going fine, the brain has to be optimal so that these uh, children can progress well. And uh, Dr. Lawton has continued working on our cohort from 2007 to now, also linking with Professor Ernesto Mankies at University of Cape Town. So we have uh, imaging data and uh, spectroscopic data with neurocognitive studies uh, on all of these children throughout the last 15 years. And are now even going further to uh, further define what's going on in the brain as far as HIV is concerned. So all of this actually started with the shared trial and we've been able to continue looking after these now young people uh, who, by the way, dance very well, <laughs> uh, much better than I do. And, um, and in that way, we are... Uh, you know contributing what we can to the next uh, challenge which is HIV remission
1: mark that's an extraordinary story you you laid the foundation and it's ongoing work so it's a it's 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 wonderful to hear that this is um, progressing and I think as you say the neurodevelopmental issues over the long term are going to be critical in this population I just wanted to ask you a little bit about clearly all this works relevant for the african region uh, and and other parts of the world but certainly major problem in the african region and yeah. and you've really are a research center of excellence but in terms of you know capacity development if you like or health system strengthening for the region what's what's been your thoughts as to how you can share your experience here or contribute in that regard or how south africa perhaps could contribute in that regard
2: yeah I think South Africa, through the uh, very good clinical trial infrastructure, actually uh, does contribute uh, a lot to the continent. And what's also been very interesting has been with COVID-19. And how was it that South Africa could jump in and participate in these major studies to quickly get these vaccines uh, approved in a, in a safe way? And the HIV clinical trial infrastructure has really helped a lot over there and has brought a lot of people actually across the continent together together and also with extraordinary leadership, and you know, for example, uh, Professor Glenda Gray, who's yep. the who's the president and Linda Gale of the MRC and Linda Gal Becker, you know these, and it's the presence of people like that who have stayed in South Africa and have built and have collaborated as widely as possible. That is, I think, uh, been very good for the
1: continent. No, that's excellent. Thank you. So you started off telling us your own story, um, which which I have to say was fascinating and very important. Do you got any final words of wisdom for the next generation of clinician researchers about how to build teams for sustainable impact? Given that, you know, in any region, there's so many different pressing priorities and often quite limited resources. So we'd like to hear you know your thoughts on that.
2: To Be finish honest. things. No, th- thank you. So clearly being... Uh, a good collaborator is really, really important. And also pushing the margin yourself and not relying on other people. Uh, Of course, if everyone's doing the same, it's it's going to be absolutely excellent. And then another area in the past has, has been really important, and I think in the present too, is that every single clinical disaster is a research question. And the way to approach it is is through describing it, through data, through getting your collaborations, getting your team going, get that data out. What do you need? Try to get funding, talk to your hospital, talk to the uh, funders, but keep on working at it and solve
1: the problem. Thank you. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here and I really appreciate the time you've given to us at the Melbourne Children's Global Health. So take care, all the best. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Global Child and Adolescent Health Podcast produced by Melbourne Children's Global Health, an initiative of the Melbourne Children's Campus. Melbourne Children's Campus is a partnership between the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne, the Department of Paediatrics, the University of Melbourne and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. The Melbourne Children's Campus is located on the lands of the Wurundjeri in Naam, Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to join us next time.